a great privilege today to um, present our discussion point and we're just changing the order a little bit. We're going to do communion after the discussion point. But one of the things I'm really keen to spend a little bit of time talking about is the whole idea that the purpose of Sunday is Monday. You know, a lot of people kind of have the idea that Sunday's pretty special because Sunday's the day when we get up reasonably early and we put on some pretty clean clothes. Some of us even have a shave on Sunday morning <laughs> so we can present ourselves in church, joining with others and worshipping God and hearing from His Word. And for some people, that really is where it ends. And uh, on Monday, they've actually forgotten about Sunday. And I want to actually make the somewhat radical proposition that the whole purpose of Sunday is Monday. The whole purpose of Sunday is actually to equip every one of us for what God has in store for us Monday through to Saturday. And actually there are a lot of Christian thinkers today who are beginning to understand how important it is from God's perspective that we don't just do church on Sunday, but that we actually be the body of Christ scattered all through the marketplace on Monday. And the reason is this. Before people can ask the Lord for help, they must believe in Him. And before they believe, they must hear about Him. And for them to hear, someone must tell them. That's in Romans chapter 10. Now, looking at this cartoon, of course, you might get the idea that what we're supposed to be doing on Sunday is getting all buoyed up, all beefed up, so that on Monday morning we can go to work and say, you need to accept Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. No one can come to God but through Jesus. Now, let me tell you what. I can just about guarantee if you do that at work on Monday, one, you'll be ostracised, and two, you might very well lose your job if you happen to be taking your child to a childcare centre. No one will want to talk to you the next day. If you go into the local tennis club, nobody will want to play on the court with you. Because by and large today... People don't want to be told. And I often reckon that in this age of scepticism, this age when there are so many spiritual alternatives that people have to choose from, when so many people profess to be atheists, you can't actually talk people into the kingdom of God in any case. And again, these days, we're so caught up with scientific explanations for everything, you can't scare people into the kingdom either by talking to them about the consequences of their choice not to become a follower of Jesus, that they'll actually end up in hell. They're not going to believe you most of the time because we live in this age of so-called naturalism where everything has a scientific explanation and actually when we die, the worms simply eat us and that's all there is to it. But God has a perfect plan for salvation of the world. I actually preached on this years and years ago when we were living in Toowoomba. His, his plan for salvation of the world is actually love. It's actually love. And we can demonstrate love in so many 
different ways. What we're about here at Ignite Life Church Gold Coast is actually to equip you for the works of service that God has assigned to you. In fact, that actually is a biblical reason for the existence of the institutional church. Its purpose, yes, is to glorify God through, through worship, but actually it's about equipping the saints for works of service. And look, some people interpret that as being confined to the institutional church. That is, you should serve the institutional church. And yes, I agree with that. But actually, God's perspective on the works of service is much, much broader than that. Consider this. Today, across Australia, less than 5% of our population will actually be in church. Tomorrow, 63% of the adult population in Australia will be going off to their paid employment. About 11.5 million people engage in paid employment in Australia. Some of that employment will seem very significant, like this one in the construction industry. Some of that employment might seem to be very insignificant, like the guy who drives the train at the local shopping centre. There's one of those in Harbour Town, isn't there? But from God's perspective, it doesn't matter what he's chosen us for, what work he has assigned us to, it's all vitally important in the kingdom of God. One of the reasons why we often have a very strong emphasis in church on church and not on the marketplace is that for most of the history of the church, work has actually been regarded as a second best choice. And that the first best choice has actually been to go into full-time ministry. And that this goes all the way back to Bishop Eusebius of Caesarea. Not Eusebius the historian, and I've got one of his books up there, The History of the Church. That's a different uh, Eusebius. This guy was Bishop of Caesarea. And it, it was he who... I believe was one of the very earliest church, and we're talking about around about the 4th century, it's a long time ago. He was one of the first um, church leaders to articulate the idea that there was something special about going into the priesthood, that somehow or other God had given particular uh, giftings that made them superior to everybody else, and for that reason they were to be set aside to become full-time priests in the church. Work, agricultural work and that type of thing was needful, but it was not of the same order as priestly work. And um, then for well over a thousand years thereafter, theologians indeed talked about work as being a dirty thing, a dishonourable thing. And so... By the time we got to the Reformation, there was a very, very strongly ingrained perception that work was something you had to do, but it was not anywhere nearly as godly as the priestly work. The offices of the church were concerned. And you know, that attitude actually exists still today. That, you know what, when you get saved... You're on fire for the Lord. You really should aim to become 
a pastor or a youth worker or some kind of full-time worker for the church. And you know what? If that's the call of God on your life, you need to go for it because you'll never be satisfied unless you actually follow the calling that God has on your life. But sadly, so many people are drawn into full-time church work when it actually isn't their calling, their gifts don't equip them for that work, but they feel that somehow they can express their love for the Lord better by being in full-time so-called ministry as opposed to being in their workplace. But I actually want to kill that sacred cow today. It's actually a deception. It has impaired the church for the best part of 2,000 years. And it's one of the reasons why there's only 5% of the population worshipping God in church on any Sunday. Back around uh, the mid-1940s, Dorothy Sayers, who's probably best known as as a novelist, but she was also a theologian, she commented then that how can the church actually expect people to come along Sunday by Sunday when it totally ignores 95% of their lives and only focuses on the very small proportion of their lives that they actually spend engaged with the institutional church. And of course, since about the middle of the 20th century, church attendance has dropped right away in the West. In fact, in in Europe these days, Christians are actually a very small minority and they have very little influence on culture, they have very little influence on politics. And of course the same thing is happening in Australia, it's happened in the United States and in other Western countries. In fact, in Australia right now, if you actually listen to the political rhetoric, Christians are actually on the fringe. We're being pushed out of the mainstream and we're actually being told we've got no right to have a say in the public square. And in a way, it's our own fault because we've accepted this idea that the world out there is somehow dirty and that we shouldn't really get our hands grubby by being engaged with the world. And yet, thinkers like uh, Martin Luther saw how wrong it was. I have a a quote from uh, Martin Luther here, which I think is an important because it contains a very, very critical idea for the church today. This he said back in 1520, so it's a little while ago. And this is what he says, a cobbler, a smith, a farmer, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other. That in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. This is a fundamentally important idea for the church today. Because what Luther was saying is that there is no hierarchy of calling as far as God is concerned. It's not actually a higher calling to be the Pope than it is to be the guy who sweeps up cigarette butts off a public footpath. I've said this before, in the Lord there is no hierarchy. In the Lord there are those who are saved and there are those who are not. In biblical terms there are those who are fools and there are those who are wise. There's nothing in between. There's no hierarchy. 
The work that I do might require a high level of formal education, but the work that the guy who prunes our hedges does, it doesn't require that higher level of education, but what I do and what he does can bring glory to God and can be an encouragement to other people. It's not the position that we hold within any particular organisation, it's the attitude we take with us when we engage in our work that matters. This is a really deep theological statement that Martin Luther made. Why? Because our attitude should be, in whatever my calling, whatever it is I'm doing, be that a, a um, formal ministry role or some other role in the marketplace, some of you are involved in childcare, some are engineers, I'm an academic, whatever it is, we are here to benefit and serve others. That's the primary purpose why God has called us into some area of the marketplace. Because God's heart is to see everybody flourish and we actually can contribute to the flourishing of others through our work. So our work is actually central to God's purposes on the earth. Many kinds of work. Many kinds of work. We're not restricting work to any particular type of organisation. We're not restricting work to any particular type of work. All work that is consistent with the Word of God, and that rules out very few things like don't go out and become a prostitute for the glory of God. Don't go out and become a modern slave trader for the glory of God because you won't get any glory out of that. But most occupations bring us many opportunities to serve other people and to bring God glory. And look at this. Work is not only for the bodily welfare, but also for the spiritual welfare of others. So you might, for example, work in a, in, in a food processing industry. That, that clearly is contributing to bodily welfare because we all get hungry and we all need to eat. Most of us, I'm sure, look forward to our community time after our service. You can see now the table spread with beautiful food. I see there, there are cream biscuits there, which I love. I see there's, there's um, pineapple. We get the best pineapples in the world here in Queensland. There's twisties, my favourite naughty snack, all there on the table, all contributing to my bodily welfare. But of course the other important thing in the context of our marketplace activities is that we contribute to the spiritual welfare of others. And you know what? You can do that simply by giving someone a smile because it makes them feel better. Not hard to do at all. And of course we serve one another as the body of Christ scattered out there in the marketplace but we serve others who are not necessarily right now part of the body of Christ. What I want to propose today is that the most fundamental idea we can take into our work is the principle of neighbour love. And you'll remember this when one of the experts in the law was trying to trap Jesus into saying what was the most important of all of the laws of God. 
And this wasn't anything new. Jesus, of course, he was drawing directly from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, actually. If you have a look at the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, a little bit after the Ten Commandments are given, there's this statement that we are to love God. And in Leviticus, there is a statement about loving our neighbour. So Jesus wasn't actually even summarising the law. He was actually repeating what was already in the Jewish books of the law. And this is what he said in, in reply. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And of course Jesus actually said the whole of the law and the prophets hangs on these commandments. I think there are many, many, many ways in which you can express neighbour love in the context of a workplace. So my main um, area of responsibility, of course, is teaching at tertiary level. I can express love for my own students by actually putting a lot of effort into my lectures, by making sure that they're good quality lectures, by making sure that they're entertaining and engaging enough to hold the interest of the students. They've got to sit there and listen to me for three hours at a stretch, mind. I can express neighbour love by ensuring that I deliver a just outcome on their assessment. Last Friday, I was marking um, examination scripts and I was marking assignments for some of my students. And before I marked, my prayer was, Lord, help me to deliver a just outcome to every single student. That's an expression of neighbour love. Having an open door policy so that any of my students can come and see me at any time. Yes, that, and I'll do the same for staff. That's inconvenient, let me tell you, because I get a lot of interruptions, but it's an expression of neighbour love. Um, I've been in, in senior management positions in other, other um, workplaces, and I remember the last workplace I, I left, well, some people cried. I think I might have told you about that. If I've got any kind of boast about being a good boss, I'm a good enough boss to make people cry when I leave. <laughs> but also, some people said to me, um, you know, one of the, the major things we will remember about you is that you allow a lot of healing to take place. And I'd, I'd come in as dean of a, a very large faculty with some 10,000 students enrolled in it. There were, I think there were about... Um, I think it was about 220 staff all up. And uh, there'd been a, a merger of two faculties, two pre-existing faculties. They had totally different cultures. There was a lot of angst about that, that merger. And somehow by the grace of God and by this decision I had made to express neighbour love, we were able to bring about what people referred to as, as healing. And that should be our experience, that... People should know that we're different in our workplaces as we express neighbour love. You might be somebody working in a factory. Let's say you're putting together components of some kind of machinery. You can express neighbour love by being committed to making your piece of machinery the most reliable and the safest product that the final customer has ever purchased in their life. Even though that person might not ever get to meet you, there's love in that 
machine. All of us who are in um, workplaces where there's a lot of contact with other people have many, many opportunities to express neighbour love. And as I said, it can be as simple as giving someone a smile, saying good day to them. Another really important expression of neighbour love is to learn people's names. I can remember, I, I always do try very hard to remember the names of people I meet. And uh, I can remember one of our admin people, again this was in my previous employment where there were a lot of staff, but I used to remember the names of everybody and one of my admin people came up and said, I've never worked in a place before where the boss remembered my name. That is so simple. That is so very simple. And so I don't think it's actually hard to take Sunday into Monday at all. But we have to just be conscious of the fact that we're agents of the Lord everywhere we go. And we don't have to have our hands raised in the air. We don't have to be singing out, praise the Lord all the time, because people will actually think we're weird and we are if we do that. But it's actually just by small acts of neighbour love that people are drawn to us. I want to move on now and give some practical um, hints in terms of how we might occupy ourselves in our workplaces. And by the way, this applies right across the board. It's not just in the context of paid employment. Jeanette was a stay-at-home mum from around about the time we were married until our daughters were married, but she had many, many interactions with other people. Back in New Zealand, there were um, playgroups, play and so Jeanette was engaged with a whole lot of other mums, and lots of opportunities to express neighbour love. And similarly, she was involved in, in arts and craft type activities, so it doesn't have to be paid employment. It's wherever you're rubbing shoulders with other people. Up there on the screen now I've got what's called the 6M framework proposed by Mark Green. Now Mark Green is the director of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. That was actually established by John Stott. Many of you would be familiar with John Stott. He was an Anglican minister for a very long time, theologian. He's written a lot of books. I, I had the immense privilege of actually meeting John Stott years ago he, he spoke at a breakfast at Kenmore Baptist Church, believe it or not, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to go down there and to, to meet him. Fabulous man, one of the great church thinkers of the 20th century. But here are the six M's in this 6M framework. framework. The first is make good work. And that really is all about being committed to doing the very best that you can in the context of your workplace. So if you're writing a memo, make it the best memo that's ever been written. If you're doing um, some kind of report, you make it the best report that you've ever written. I remember when Ainsley was involved in writing um, strategic documentation for her workplace. She'd never done that kind of thing before. She showed me the work that she was doing. It was actually quite outstanding for someone who'd never done any strategic planning before. And we found some gaps and she went away and fixed those up. What she did actually not only brought honour to herself and God, but she was honouring those in her workplace by listening to them, by drawing on them for feedback. She was actually making good work in that context. 
So you see it, a lot of it has to do with the attitude that we have to our work. In our workplace, we can model godly character. Perhaps one of the major characteristics most of us need in our workplace is patience. <laughs> we have a God who is long-suffering. The Word tells us that in many different places. So it can be as simple as us being patient with others when those around us are losing their patience. Minister love and grace. You know what? There are a lot of people in our workplaces and in the social groupings that we get involved in that are not easy to love. Wouldn't that be true? Sometimes we have to take a breath, we have to count to ten and make up our mind that we're actually going to love people. Grace. Now let me just say, grace is not slackness, alright? We're not saying that to extend people grace is to actually allow them to be slack. If you're a manager, if you're in a supervisory position, you can't allow people to be slack. It's not actually good for them anyway. But you know, grace is actually about empowering people to be the people God wants them to be. So when you extend grace, you're actually helping people um, rise from the level that they're at and operate on a, on a higher level. So by spending time, by investing some time in somebody who doesn't have the level of competence, for example, to be able to do a particular task well, you're actually extending them grace. Right? You're, you're giving up some of your time and your energy and your expertise to help somebody rise to a higher level of competence. That's grace. Okay? Not putting up with people being slack. You want to encourage people not to be slack. You have opportunities often to mould culture. Um, the culture of an organisation is often being described as simply the way we do things around here. How often can you think, did you think in your own experience, when someone new comes into the workplace, they get totally ignored? That's not a good culture. Because God loves people. So you can actually mould culture by doing something as simple as sitting in the lunchroom with the new person who's just been employed. Find out a little bit about them. Find out about their family. Invite them around for a barbecue. There is so much you can do to change culture. I remember <laughs> years ago, um, there was a, a reallocation of, of staff in my workplace and... Someone came up to me and said, well, look, I'm allocating so-and-so to be your executive assistant. I said, no, that's okay. And he said, but I, I just want to warn you, you can't swear around her. I said, well, that's okay. He said, she's a Christian, you know. I said, well, that's okay. So am I. <laughs> but you know what? She'd actually done something about the culture, at least in her tiny sphere of influence, in the context of her workplace, because people knew... There was something about her culture that said, when we're around her, we don't use those lazy swear words that we might use in other places. We can be a mouthpiece for truth and justice. And look, we're not always going to get opportunities to do that. It doesn't always fall our way. But sometimes we will see an injustice in our workplace, and then we have an opportunity to quietly 
do something about it or at least point out that this is an unjust outcome. That's not always easy to do. But we just have to ask ourselves, can we stand by when God is a God of justice and allow injustice in our workplace? So that's another way in which we can bring Sunday into Monday. And finally, and, and not the least important by any means, is that we can be a messenger for the gospel. Now sometimes people will actually give us permission to speak directly to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Often that won't happen. But you know, you, you can actually be the gospel as well as speak the gospel to other people. Now, ultimately, actually, people do need to be challenged to make the choice to either become a follower of Jesus Christ or to reject him. But the Great Commission in Matthew 28 can be roughly paraphrased in the following way. In going about your daily business, let your whole life shout the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the way you live, the way you act in the workplace itself can be a representation of the gospel to others. So there you have it, the 6M framework. Mark Green's actually written a whole book about this and there's actually a series of videos and, and a workbook which I actually bought it last weekend as a matter of fact. I was at a conference and Mark Green was one of the speakers at that conference. So was I, but like he was the headline act. <laughs> I wasn't, but that could be me next year. You just never know. Um, but he's got a whole book and I think a little bit down the track um, we might do that, the whole course on uh, being a Christian in the workplace which is all about taking Sunday into Monday his book is titled Thank God It's Monday I've got another book by Mark Milton Mark used to be the CEO of um, Gloria Jeans he's actually a friend of mine I'm just name dropping but he's written a book and it's called Monday Matters and it's a brilliant book. And I like to have Australian um, books as well on my bookshelf. It's a really good book too. It doesn't take too long to read. But these are guys who are thinking um, very much about how do we take what we're doing in church on, Monday, on, on Sunday and equip our people for what happens to them for most of their lives. And for many of us, of course, that starts on Monday. A couple of other comments... This is not easy. It's not easy. And the last thing I would ever want to do is to add weight to the weight you already bear. Because for many of us, our workplace is not an easy thing. Uh, there are all sorts of pressures on us in the workplace. And the very last thing that I would want to do would be to burden you with this thought that I've got to go to work tomorrow and make a difference for Jesus Christ. But I just want to challenge you to a commit, what I've called a commitment, I can keep. This is the thing. I do not know if I will have an opportunity to invite someone to church or lead someone to Jesus when I'm at work tomorrow. Alright? I don't know that. And the reason I don't know that is that it takes the other person to make the choice. Do you understand that? See, I can't make choices for other people. I can't force someone to become engaged like I am in church. 
I can't force somebody to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. So that's actually out of my control. But what I can do is commit to what I call faithful practice. Is there something in that 6M framework that I can do next week in the context of my work? It might be something very simple. Like maybe next week I can determine I'm going to change my attitude towards work. I'm going to see my work as good work. And through my good work, I'm actually going to bless others bodily and spiritually, as Martin Luther said way back in 1520. So you don't have to take something like the full 6M framework and to implement that properly, you need to do the course or need to read the book or whatever. There's no expectation on my part that you would suddenly become an expert at that and go and implement everything. But can you think of one or two faithful practices that you could actually adopt in the context of your workplace? Do you know, let me just give you a little tiny example of this. I have been a Christian for a long time, but as you know, I've not always worked for a Christian organisation. Before I started working in my current place of employment, I spent 28 years working in public universities. And I, I became a sort of born-again-again again Christian in 1989, after having kind of walked away from the church for a while. But in April 1989, I really came back to the Lord in a big way, and Jeanette joined me there one week later, um, which was kind of neat. I think she thought I'd totally flipped my lid and she came along to the church to see how crazy they all were and she flipped her lid as well. And since then we've had flipped lids for Jesus. <laughs> but in about 19... It must have been um, 1999 or the year 2000, I, I actually had long service leave. So it must have been after 2003, but that doesn't really matter. I had some long service leave. And, you know, God spoke to me and said, I want you to love your students. And, of course, I was so taken aback by that. What? I thought, hang on a minute, I'm a Christian, I love everybody, don't I? But I realised I'd bought into the same rhetoric over students as many of my colleagues had, which was students were actually a bit of a nuisance because we were supposed to get on with our research and other things. And having to go to class and having to mark assignments, it was a chore that wasn't very enjoyable and we actually had a generally poor attitude towards students. Now I want to tell you, at that time, I had a large class, but the dropout rate in that class was 25%. So around about 25% of the students didn't even make it at the end of the class. The failure rate was over 30%. And it wasn't all that unusual. And I, I wondered, what, what does it actually mean to love my students? And I thought, well, actually, it must mean doing all I can to get them passed. So while I was on long service leave, I don't even know whether Jeanette knows this, but I used to go back to my office late at night when everyone was asleep, <laughs> and I totally rewrote my course. I got a new textbook, which was a lot easier for students to read, and, and rewrote, and in consultation with another Christian guy, I um, did what they call, what they call it, multiple representation, so that students with different learning styles were actually able to access the material in a way that suited them. 
And I want to tell you the outcome of that was that the dropout rate fell from 25% to zero. Wow. 25% to zero. The failure rate fell from 30% to 10%, and I did not compromise on standard. All I did was love my students. It hadn't even occurred to me as a Christian that I wasn't loving my students. I was just doing in my workplace what everybody else did. And then God pulled me up short and said, love your students. And so I made an effort which actually demonstrated the application of neighbour love and it had an enormous impact. Most of those students will never know, of course, but God knows. And there was blessing for those students because that particular class it swung around from being one of the hardest to one that most students could pass if they actually put in their 10 hours of study every week. And since then, of course, I've maintained that record. My students pass, not because I have easy classes, but because I express neighbour love by putting a lot of effort into creating the learning resources and in actually presenting the material. I'm not so good at getting marking done on time, though, because I've got a lot of other things, and that's one of the areas I need to improve. If I really espouse and preach neighbour love, that's one area that I really need to improve on. And, of course, we will all find that. So... If you can adopt just one or two faithful practices in your workplace, in three to six months' time, just have a think about how different your workplace might now be. So this actually is about the Great Commission. You know, the Great Commission applies to every single one of us. You like that one, Ainsley? A redneck Great Commission... Y'all heard Jesus, so get her done. <laughs> Go then into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the call on all our lives. That's a fundamental calling that we all have. And we can actually do it wherever we happen to find ourselves in this great big marketplace on Monday. And most of the time we're not going to have an opportunity to buttonhole somebody and threaten them with hell if they don't turn from their evil ways and follow Jesus Christ, but we can actually gradually draw people into the kingdom by the way in which we act as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in our workplace. So what I want to do now is actually to continue with this theme for communion. So Jeanette, if you'd like to um, just get the emblems. And um, what I want to do actually is a kind of commissioning in a, in a way the last time I, I led communion I did use as, as my scripture uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and I think I read from around about verse 23 but if I can just read from verses 24 this time to um, 28 and when he had given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And I focused on the idea that every time we take communion, we're actually making a proclamation, not only in this physical world, but also in the spiritual world, that we believe in Jesus and that we believe in the efficacy of his shed blood and his broken body as he hung on the cross. We also believe in the power of God that worked in him to bring about his resurrection that worked in us as well. But when we go on from verse 26 to verses 27 and 28, this is what we read. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now I've heard these verses used many, many times in churches, and, and it's so often interpreted as us coming uh, to commune with unforgiveness in our heart, and there are other verses that indicate that, of course. But I, I've checked on some, some commentaries. I, I have about 14 or 15 different commentaries on, on the Bible. And what many of them are actually saying is that to be unworthy when we come to partake of communion, it's really about how we behave towards one another and towards those in the world. So it's not just about whether or not we bear unforgiveness in our hearts, but it's actually about whether, we're, whether we are taking the Great Commission seriously and becoming Great Commission people in the context of the marketplace. So there's an element of unworthiness in us if we fall into the trap of believing that it all happens on Sunday and that Sunday is not even intended to be a significant influence on us from Monday through to the next Saturday. Most assuredly, it is, and that God's intention is that what we do here on a Sunday actually builds us up for what He has assigned to us on Monday. So if we don't have that attitude, then we are guilty of taking communion in an unworthy manner. So let's make up our minds this morning that wherever we find ourselves in the marketplace tomorrow, be it in our place of paid employment, or be it in some voluntary capacity, be it a stay-at-home mum, stay-at-home dad, or whatever it is we're doing, let's make it our business to engage in one or two faithful practices that will, over time, make us great ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So let's, let's take our communion.